Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Greg Galley, the co-founder of Solve Next, where he uses the power of simple and straightforward language, frameworks, tools, and techniques to deliver positive impact at key moments. He's also the author of Think Wrong. Welcome to the show, Greg. Oh, it's great to see you, Douglas. You too. I wish we were in the same room so you could be controlling it and I could be watching you do it. <laughs> I know. I do have this like fantasy of having a table with boom arms holding the mics and we're kind of smoking cigars or something. I don't know about the cigars, but it would be nice to have a conversation across the table. That would be lovely. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> yeah. Mark Marin does it in his garage. You know, there you go. He even had Obama in his garage. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I know. listened to that episode. It was great. There's a, something stuck with me from that episode, which was sort of depressing, where Obama talked about how hard he was working to create a 2% change in the trajectory of the country. And I thought, wow, that's such a small little movement. But his point was, if you take this thing that's you know the size of this country and you shift its direction by two percent over time that's massive uh so yeah <laughs> i do remember that yeah, you know it's like it takes lots of effort to move big things for yep. sure yeah and you know it makes me think of a concept that i'm a huge fan of which is kind of local solutions to global problems mm. you know like making these small shifts absolutely that then can have these big amplification effects yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny. <laughs> I I know from some of the conversation we've been having that we'll, we'll get to the topic of sort of the surprises that have happened in the last eighteen months. One of the surprises for us was we we got a call from a guy named Daniel Baritica. He he took part in our first Think Wrong Facilitators Intensive that we did in um, in November of twenty sixteen. Uh, and he came up from Colombia. He was running a nonprofit there that he had founded. <laughs> he had reached out to me and and talked to me into giving him the nonprofit discount and uh, made his way up. And uh, we we reengaged at the beginning of the pandemic. He reached out again and and sort of updated me on what he had been doing. And one of the things that has emerged from it is is something that I'm super excited about, actually, which I haven't shared with you, and that is that we're we're starting a global partners program. And that's interesting, but but what I think is really interesting about it is that we're looking at scaling the impact of what we do through local people in local markets. And the idea mm-hmm. there is 
it, it just, as you said, like what's the positive impact that you can drive when we actually partner with local people, we train them, we give them the tools and the, the knowledge and it, that they need to do this kind of work in the community where they're fluent in the culture, they're fluent in the economy, they live in the local economy. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to pay somebody who lives in Austin or somebody who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area to come to your country and do work. You're automatically paying a premium as opposed to if you're in Medellin, being able to hire somebody in Medellin, Colombia to come and do that work. As you shared that, I just think there's actually an interesting business model that makes that possible as well to engage people locally and to actually find people who are going to be more effective than you. They know the language, they know the culture, they know the nuances of the place and can actually affect, can affect change in a really powerful way. So sorry to jump right onto that, but. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. I think it expands beyond just the local, regional kind of cultural stuff that you might find in communities, whether it be personal or, or just sustaining a community and the way people live but also inside businesses because the people that are on the edges are the ones that have the latest information yep. and the information is constantly changing and evolving. And so to your point, these folks that are in the local environment are the ones that understand the rituals, understand what's happening, what's unfolding. And if you take that to a national level as well, if we're so focused on shifting policy, by the time the, the policy <laughs> changes, the thing that it was seeking to achieve might have shifted already. Yeah. If, unless we're like getting into the actual moments that matter to come back to your language. Yeah. It's what are those key moments where positive impact is needed? Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely right. I love the idea you're sort of touching on of the people at the edges in in these places. So if you're a multinational, then people in in some of these maybe more remote markets or places that you don't pay attention to are actually in they're living at the, at the edge of something that could be really beneficial whether that's economic or social or environmental whatever it is we do some nonprofit work in the human trafficking space and you're always in edge environments when you're doing that work and there's really exciting innovation that happens there because it's not bound by the question of how are we going to get this policy through congress and the senate or you know it's how are we going to engage with local people and do meaningful work with them that actually in, in the case of the trafficking space that inoculates populations from trafficking. You know? you know, it's like I did a little work in that area too. And the startup we were consulting and helping with were really focused on this cross-sector communication problem because it was like these pockets of information that would be siloed. And since the information wasn't flowing, it was difficult for action to be taken. Right. And so, especially when you're thinking about local, regional, federal, state, law enforcement, yep. or even like nonprofit groups that might have certain pools of data that would be really helpful if you started to stitch those things together and look at trends and patterns. Just hearing some of the stories, I mean, I won't get into that because that's not what this podcast is about, but gosh, hearing some of the stories of some of these young women mm. that come from affluent families and basically kidnapped in plain sight, you know, it's like, yep. it's crazy. And it was really interesting that they were taking this kind of collaborative approach to solving that problem. Yeah, I think that's a totally different podcast, as you said, to get into the problem of trafficking. But one, one of the things that you just mentioned that I think is really interesting is that the cross-sector communication, when you talk about that failure to connect and that failure, like just not understanding, right? And this is to bring it back to the, to the focus of this conversation, the ability to 
understand each other is, I think, really dependent on being careful about curating a really diverse group of people and making sure that you, that you represent the different communities that are in the ecosystem, right? That are part of the part of the value chain or the ecosystem or the community, however you want to think about that. And, and making sure that you're hearing different voices. And sometimes you do actually need to have somebody in the room who can help you translate. And I don't mean you don't speak the language like they're speaking German and I don't speak German. I mean, they're speaking DOD and I don't speak Department of Defense, right? <laughs> yeah, jargon <laughs> so, is like a huge barrier to understanding. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we all have it. Like we all have our different little sort of local languages. So both, I think, bringing in people who have, do, do have these different dialects or different languages that use different jargon, uh, who have different lived experiences and different perspectives is super beneficial when we're, when we're working on a you know, sticky, complex challenge. Having people who can help do some of the translation and make it relevant is really helpful. And also just giving people permission to say, hey, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying right? Stop, <laughs> right? Uh, you got to, we say, uh, you know, today, one of the jokes when we're doing, working with military people is we say, today's going to be an AFD. And they're like, what do you mean an AFD? It's going to be an AFD. What do you mean? Well, acronym free day, right? Because, <laughs> because the military is full of acronyms. It's like everything's an acronym. And, you know, that's sort of like, you're going to just, for today, if you use an acronym, I'm going to stop you and you're going to explain to me what it means. And that's just because it's a sequence of words and not letters doesn't mean I'm going to understand. You're going to have to explain to me what those sequence of words mean too, because they're often super cryptic. You know, I want to roll back a second and talk about something you just said, which was, I don't know. Uh huh. And I don't know is one of those interesting phrases that I think falls into a bucket of phrases that are nice indicators that you have psychological safety on your team. Mm. Mm. There are others too. Like if you're hearing a lot of like, you know, the problem with that is, or, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I made a mistake is another one, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yep. but certainly I don't know. Yeah. And I was thinking about this when you were talking about the ecosystem representation mm -hmm. and we can invite all the right people to the room and sure, we might have blind spots, and that can take a lot of work to try and uncover sure. what the blind spots are. Yeah. But even if we don't have blind spots, we can have everybody in the right room. But if people don't feel safe to say, I don't know, mm. then we're not going to have that true representation because the voices aren't actually heard because they're never activated. Yeah, there's a couple of things we do around that. You're absolutely right. There's a couple of things we, that we think are really important. One is is to collapse the status as quickly as you can. So. Mm even in introductions, you know, so we'll do like warm up introductions, which is, I just want your first name and uh, tell me if you were a tool, what kind of tool would you be? Or, you know, tell me your secret talent or tell me the weirdest job you had ever had, but and, uh, describe it in two words. So what happens in that situation is that you're, you know, being very human. I'm going to share with you my name. I'm Greg. My secret talent is, you know, drawing weird faces. <laughs> okay. And I'm not telling you what department I'm in. I'm not telling you what, you know, my LinkedIn profile says about me. I'm just sharing something that you, you probably didn't know about me. And we're connecting that way. We're connecting as, as human beings. So there's that kind of flattening of status. That's really important. And then I think I, think I did this exercise actually in, in, in one of your summits. And that was the, um, the what's half of 13 exercise, right? Where you ask people what's half of 13 and 
very quickly, everybody, you know, write it down on your post-it. When you've got it, put your answer up. So suddenly everybody's in this race to be right. So everybody holds up 6.5. And you say, okay, well, that, that's one answer. Anybody else have an answer that besides 6.5? And you start to get some of the other answers, like one and three or third and teen or, you know, the Roman numeral that's split in half, so it becomes eight. And that's useful to get people receptive to the idea of, hey, there are many possible answers <laughs> to any question. And we actually need to be thinking about the nature of the question as much as the answers. Because if it was just purely a standardized math question, then 6.5 is right. But if, it's a, if, you're, if, if you're a second language learner and, and you ask me what's half of 13, you're probably looking for help with pronunciation. Thir and teen is more helpful than 6.5, right? So I think getting groups receptive to the idea when they're together that, oh, I need to be attentive to everybody and what they're saying, and I actually need to be open to other possible answers. That's another way of of kind of collapsing the status that that I think is really effective. Yeah, that half of 13 is fascinating because it falls into a, a bucket of tools that some people might classify it as an icebreaker or might use it as an icebreaker, but we usually call them eye-openers. Yeah. Right? It helps people like see a different yes. perspective and can be really powerful to maybe set up a, n- a new way of thinking, right? You know, I interviewed a guy named Paul Sloan. I don't know if you've run into this guy before, but he's been like crowned the king of lateral thinking puzzles. Mm. And I feel like th- that's an example of a lateral thinking puzzle, right? But usually the lateral thinking puzzles do have an, a one specific answer, but they tricked you into giving the wrong answer. And so oh, like, I see. you're supposed to think through them in some new way. There's some path that's unexpected. But I feel like in all the work we do and all the kind of setups and games and instructions and prompts and moves and whatnot, we're always trying to get people to engage in lateral thinking. Yeah, I think that's right. There are things that we do also which are about convergent thinking, right? So how do we get mm-hmm. aligned? How do we start to come together yep. around something? So sometimes we're moving laterally. We're being divergent and, and trying to create as many possibilities as, as possible. And then there are other times where we're trying to, we're seeking some form of agreement, at least to get focus, right? It doesn't have to be that we have the answer, but maybe that we've narrowed it from 100 things that we've generated to five things that are worth exploring, right? Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of both of those. I really love the framing of that as, as eye-openers versus icebreakers. I think that's a much more powerful way of positioning what that exercise is about. And it's that's helpful to me, thank you, to, to think about some of the other things that we do that are meant to be eye-openers, right? <laughs> as opposed to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is like a call to action for all the facilitators listening out there, which is like, anytime you're facilitating something and you get blank stares or people are struggling, <laughs> then... You know, write that down because that's an opportunity for you to design something to insert before that activity that might make them understand how to behave in that way. Right. Before they do the thing, what's some kind of fun exercise they might do to have an aha moment? So I'm curious, Greg, what's another one that you have up your sleeve that's like sort of like the half of 13 that gets people kind of thinking or, or, or just being in a different way? Uh, there's a couple that we do for being in a different way. This, this is this is one that I, I, I learned from somebody who used to be, d- did a lot of facilitation at IDEO. And uh, before she would start to facilitate, she would hold up a photograph of a roller coaster and, you know, ask, what what is this? And people say, it's a roller coaster. And she's like, you're absolutely right. It's a roller coaster. And what we're going to do today is a little bit like a roller coaster. So who in the room loves roller coasters? And you get some people putting their hands up. Who doesn't like roller coasters? You get your hands up and you say, 
that's you know just like a just like a workshop right just like a, a meeting some people love them some people hate them right some people try to avoid them some people seek them out and you feel it in different ways at different times on a roller coaster sometimes you're excited sometimes you're afraid sometimes you're disoriented sometimes you're nauseous and everybody in the room is going to feel these different things at different times and that's okay right i'm just asking you to stay on the ride with me so i, I think that's a really nice way of Letting people know we're, we're not all going to feel the same about this experience. And we're certainly not all going to feel the same about this experience at the same time. And then this sort of ask of the group, which is be present with me and, and, and let's do this together. And, and at the end, let's talk about what the ride was like. So the, the sort of suspend disbelief, that's useful. Now, one that's, that is always really a profound experience, and I, it's not that uncommon. I think almost, you know, pr- probably all your facilitators have used some version of another is is introducing the improv principle of yes anding, right? Mm. Uh, and so it's not, there's nothing very exotic about it, but it, it's, a, it's always amazing the effect it has on people, in, in particular, I would say in business and in, in the public sector and the private sector, people who aren't doing this work for a living but are participating in, in, in sessions. You know, I, I've actually had, you know, older men crying <laughs> Because they realize that I've spent my whole career, yes, budding or no, no, knowing people, right? No, no, mm-hmm. no, you can't do that. Yes, but we can't do that. You know, that's been done before. And, and so that yes, and we like to use it early on as both an eye opener in terms of how we maybe sometimes respond to people and the impact that that has and, and how that can really inhibit people from participating fully. And then to have them physically experience what's it, what it's like to yes but and what it's like to yes and. Uh, and then we, that, is, that actually establishes uh, a rule of how we're going to engage with each other. And you'll see people, you know, I've had people who worked with them a year ago and they, they come back and they, we, use, we still use yes and, yes and you know, every day we use, yes, we use that. And it's spreading throughout our organization. So it's a really, I think that's an eye opener. That's a simple eye opener, but it, it's, it certainly is powerful for people to experience that. And, uh, you know, there's another one. <laughs> it, it's, it's not so much a trick, but it has to do with where you are in a process. And I, I have to use a, a mantra of, less persuasion, more generation, right? <laughs> or less conversation, more generation, which is when we're engaged in an exercise where we're trying to get a lot of ideas, you know, whether that's ideas around a pain or a problem or ideas around a solution, we really want it to be divergent. You'll find that people are, you know, they want to convince you that their idea is good. <laughs> and it's like, I, we're not going to spend any time evaluating ideas right now. We just want as many as we can. So more generation, less conversation, right? Less persuasion, because you hear some people trying to convince others. And then finally, I'll give you, I'll give you one more. I said two, but I think I'm giving you four now. We have an exercise that is called SASU, uh, S-A-S-U. And it stands for share and shut up. And so we call it the proprietary trademarked, you know, patent pending feedback methodology called SAZU. So when a team shares, we say, you're, you're going to share your idea, but then you can't say anything. The group is going to ask you questions. They're going to they're share with you what they like. You know, they're going to do, I like, I wish, I wonder. You know, I like this about it. I wish this about it. I wonder this. They can ask you open questions. The only thing you can say in response is thank you. And 
that mechanism is really powerful. I'd probably put it in the eye opener for people, which is we spend so much time trying to defend our ideas that we don't, we're not able to listen. We're not even able, mm-hmm. able to hear what, what is being shared with us in response to what we've created. So if we just change the rule of the game a little bit and we say, you just can't say anything, but thank you. Have somebody on your, t- on your team take notes, scribe, so you get the, you capture what has been shared with you. And then you get to decide later without the, those people in the room, what if that was useful to us? And then suddenly you're hearing what they're saying instead of, I always use this posture of like, you're on your back foot ready to punch, right? When you're, after you've presented, okay, now tell me what you think. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm thinking about what's my counterpunch to what you're going to tell me as opposed to, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm going to think about that later. Yeah, it's like whenever I'm doing a magical meetings talk, I always ask folks, how many people here spend a large portion of their time in meetings thinking about what they're going to say next? Like rehearsing in your head (laughs) to make sure you sound smart in front of the CEO or 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 the GM or whoever. And inevitably, it's like 80 plus percent of the room raises their hand and said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'm like, me too. It's yeah. like we all yeah. we all want to sound smart. We all want to like not kind of have word garbage come out of our <laughs> mouth. And so it's really liberating when someone's facilitating you and giving you this instruction. All you got to say is thank you. Right. It takes the weight off, right? Oh, it does. It's like teams love it. It's like, oh, that's great. I don't have to defend my idea. It's yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. You just gave them permission to not do the thing that they probably or don't even enjoy doing, but feel like they have to. They have to, right? Because, or someone expects them to do it. Yeah. Well, because we, you know, we live in a. I don't know if it's unique to our culture, but we spend a lot of time figuring out how to dismantle people's ideas, right? How to how to poke mm. holes in it. How to be critical thinking is to be critical. It's like, well, not always. <laughs> critical thinking sometimes is about how you combine things in new ways and create new things out of them and what's possible. Not just how you deconstruct it and leave all the parts on the ta- on the table and say, I've done my job and you know, here. <laughs> we also uh, outlaw the use of the expression, I just want to play devil's advocate. Right. <laughs> Which is and we will introduce that when we introduce the yes and, you know, we, we have a drill which is called Djibouti. It's in uh, conventional improv, it would be Remember Mexico, but Americans have a tendency to be at, at times to use negative stereotypes of uh, people from Mexico. So we're like, we don't use, we don't call it Remember Mexico, we call it Djibouti because Americans are bad at geography and they don't know where Djibouti is, so they don't have any stereotypes of Djibouti, right? And so so we do... We do uh, we do Djibouti, we introduce the yes and practice, but we also, in, in, in the intro to this, we talk about different forms of yes but, which is, I, I'm guilty of this one, which is, I can't tell you how many times, in particular with my wife, <laughs> with poor Darcy, I catch myself starting a, a, a responding to her with no, no, no. It's like, what a jerky way to, what a jerk, you know, to start a sentence with three no's. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, that's so, like finger wagging. You know? It's like some old grumpy man you know, scolding you. No, no, no. What you hear a lot in business, for it's people are masquerading as being constructive, which is, I just want to play devil's advocate. I, I just want to play devil's advocate is, I just want to tear this idea down before it draws another breath. I want to stop this. It sounds disruptive. It sounds like it's going to be a problem for me. So I'm going to kill it. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. That's another sort of momentum killer for us when we when you hear that or see You know, let me throw a little curveball at you. Okay. Because <laughs> I totally agree with what you're saying. Yep. There's another way to harness that energy without totally outlawing it. And the way you do that is by inviting that behavior, by 
sharing the wrong answer because people love to like prove something wrong. Mm. So as the facilitator, you could be like, what if we did this? And then, <laughs> and it's a great way to have the room erupt into like, what? No, we can't do that. And then they start, and then they start talking about the real juice of what's going on, which can be captured especially if I'm trying to map out like a state of something or to understand what's going on. I was like, Hey, it works like this, doesn't it? And then they tell it, no, no, it works like, no, it doesn't work like that. And then they start telling you how it works. But if I just ask them how it works, I just get a bunch of blank stares. That's know? interesting. Um, so we, we have a, we have a, a uh, you know, within think wrong, there are these six practices and, and one of them is, is called let go. And the let go practice is about really used for idea generation is how do we let go of the assumptions and biases and orthodoxies that we bring that we bring, period, right? And one of the my favorite trolls is called "Be Stupid," so which is kind of you just it made me think about that. Which is we're going to present you with a challenge statement of some sort, and you're going to sit down with the partner and you're going to start making a list of things that we could do to solve it. But they have to be the stupidest things we could do, not the brilliant thing that you've got on your mind. What's the stupidest thing we could possibly do? And so you're, you're partnered up, you're making a list of the stupidest things, and the only feedback you can give to each other is not stupid enough, right? <laughs> Until you get to, like, the stupidest of the stupidest, right? So, like, early childhood development. How might we ensure the, you know, healthy development of children from birth to age five? And so maybe the stupidest thing we could do is, like, free handguns and liquor, right, <laughs> to every child. And to be like wait a minute, that's pretty stupid. And it's like, okay, so that's your stupidest stupid. Now, if you had to start solving from there, what would you do? And then suddenly you're like, okay, hang on a second. So, you know, we have a Second Amendment right to bear arms in this country. And it's like, what would be the equivalent of a Second Amendment right for early childhood development? There's a gun lobby, right? How could we create a powerful early childhood development lobby? And then liquor, everybody pretty much enjoys liquor. There's tons of money spent on marketing it as part of our, how we celebrate. What can we learn from the liquor industry that applies to early childhood development? What are they doing that we could steal, right? And so suddenly you're starting to disassemble those things and reapply them. You're throwing out the stupid answer. <laughs> what if I just mm-hmm. give you something wrong? It's like, okay, yeah, give me something wrong and then let's try to solve from there because we're going to come up with a set of solutions that we just wouldn't otherwise come up with. Yeah, I love it. That's totally a form of lateral thinking. You yeah. Know, can yeah, we absolutely. invert the problem and mm-hmm. uh, think of the wrong answer? Or I've heard that referred to as like ideas that get us fired. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a nice way. Of, yeah. The, the one you're not going to bring to your boss. <laughs> I've yeah, got a great right. idea, boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, also you mentioned how might we, and I was recently chatting with my friend, Allison Coward, who previously appeared on the podcast. And I was actually talking to her. I, I do a series called Magical Meeting Stories, where we collect up examples of cool meetings that people have designed and, mm-hmm. and celebrate them. We'll have to collect one of yours sometime. Mm-hmm. But, um, she was sharing this cool thing. It was a reframing of a how might we. Since you mentioned how might we, it kind of stuck with me. And I'd love to get your feedback on this. But basically, she said, what if we? Mm-hmm. Which The minute she said that, it really struck a chord with me because how might we 
kind of gets at the what and the how, right? It's like, what is our approach going to look like? What might we do to solve for it? But the what if we kind of gets at the why a little bit, which is kind of fascinating to get teams aligned on like, what's the implications of the business? Does it even make sense to do this? So it's almost like a, a strategic lens on a how might we. It's kind yeah. of a version of how might we. Yeah, that's, that's great. I agree with trying to elevate to that strategic because the how itself feels tactical, right? It's a, we're, mm. we're down at the, the, the execution end of the problem as opposed to the inspiration end of the problem. Why are we doing this in the first place? Yeah, I agree. And we use how might we all the time. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's a cool reframing. I need to try that sometime. Yeah, let me um, build on it in a couple directions. One is, have you read any of Warren Berger's books? More Beautiful oh, Question. Yes. And, Yes. I always pick a book every year yeah. for my holiday gift. Uh -huh. And a more beautiful question was my holiday gift that I sent out to 50 or more people. It's yeah. a lovely book. Yeah. Um, Warren's a lovely guy. And so it's not surprising that his books are lovely as well. <laughs> he really is a dear person. He, uh, in, in A More Beautiful Question, he introduces this basic framing for query-driven discovery, query-driven innovation. And that framework is the why, what if, and then how might we? And so he, mm. he actually puts the why above the how might we, and he puts the, I mean, the, the what if above the how might we and the why above that. And the story that he tells, if you remember in the book, is of land and, and the guy who created the land camera where he's taking pictures with his daughter. Mm. And, and his daughter says, you know, the land camera being the what became widely known as the Polaroid camera. And his daughter, you know, says, Daddy, show me the pictures. And, and he says, I, I can't right now. She says, well, but why, Daddy, why? So that why, why, the, the questioning, that sort of the four-year-old girl questioning, why? You know, why can't I do that? So sort of challenging the status quo with this, because the status quo is you've got to take the film out and take it to the lab, and it's got to be, you know, all this stuff has to happen. That provocative why question got him thinking about, okay, what's a... What's a disruptive what if? What if we could take the dark room and everything that happens in the dark in the dark room? And think about that the time, right? This is like dark rooms are big, right? The camera's little. How, what if we could put that entire dark room in this camera? So this sort of miniaturization challenge of taking that whole thing. So there's this very disruptive what if that again, that's the the what if is the the lateral piece that you're talking about. Then he asks the question about how might we actually do that? without necessarily replicating a dark room in a camera, right? So the how might we became, became part of that. So I think that, I, I love that you're tuned into sort of the, the strategic importance of a certain question. Like the, I always say, like strategy is just why. <laughs> it's like the why and then the choices <laughs> that you have that you're going to make. So, so I, I love that you tuned into that. The, the other thing that when we, could, when we construct challenge statements, and a challenge statement is a, or a problem statement is something that we use when we're convening a group, it's like, this is what we've come together to focus on, right? This is why we're gathering. We're going to work on this. And it's a little bit inverted. It would start with the how might we. So what are we working on? What's the problem space or domain that we're working on? Then we, then we add to that in a, way that, in a way that, right? So it says, how might we solve this problem of, well, let's take one in California. How might we, how might we solve the, the, the challenge of wildfires and the impact that they're having on people's lives in our economy and, and on our climate? in a way that is respectful of the different needs of constituents throughout the state. And then the third part is the so that. So that mm. we can live in a more harmonious way with the planet, other species can thrive and survive as we will, right? So, 
So th- we, we actually do three parts when we frame a challenge statement. We do a how might we in a way that and so that. What are we working on? How are we going to go about doing it? Or what are the conditions we're trying to create? And, and that will often that sometimes ties into sort of the rules or the values that we're going to exhibit and bring to this. And then the so that, what's the impact that we're trying to create? That's the why. Right. This is why we're doing it. We want to have this result. So that's a that's another way of maybe sort of take Warren's and in inverting it and take the example that you got and get the why in there as well. Yeah, that's cool. I love that that's part of your challenge or opportunity framing. Yeah. And uh, it's so important because I think the number one reason why so many gatherings or meetings fall short or that people leave disgruntled it's because of a lack of alignment or understanding around those things. And it can fall in a couple of categories, right? Like some people haven't clarified it. So the mm-hmm. participants are spending yeah. the whole time trying to figure out what are we, what doing? Are we doing here? <laughs> like, I can't participate. You know, coming back to your point around the ecosystem representation, what if half the ecosystem that showed up doesn't truly understand why we're there? Right. So they might as well not be there because they can't contribute if they're spending all their cognitive energy trying to sort out what's happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we actually spend a lot of time on challenge framing uh, with our with our the groups that we work with. We spend a lot of time up front. We do we do sessions. <laughs> we do challenge framing sessions before we do our se- our, our main sessions, right? To to sort of explore those. There, I, I participate in sessions where we come up with as many as eighty potential challenges. Mm. This was in a new venturing space, or looking at developing new businesses with a, a multinational technology company looking at the challenge of distributed energy, right? And, and so you had 80, 80 potential challenges and each challenge looking at, um, at the problem from the perspective of different actors, different constituents, different people who matter. Um, and, and so you, know, you start to look at the problem from all these different perspectives and think about what's our entry point. It took us a while. We had a, we had a client who, <laughs> she, she very rightly said, you know, well, love the, love the, love the uh, three-day session you ran for us, but you'd really need to do a better job of, of establishing what the through line is. And I know that's interesting. So the through line, and I was like, what do you mean by that? She said, well, like, like the story spine, the, 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 the story arc. What are, what are we, <laughs> you have to keep reminding people why we've gathered, what we're here to do. And, and, and it, was, it dawned on me that, oh, the challenge statement, the work that we do, it's not enough to just say at the beginning what it is. You have to keep revisiting it. Mm. And you also have to allow it to evolve along with the understanding that's evolving in the room, which is, and so we have a, we have a drill that we really love to use that's called challenge the challenge. So at a certain point, we'll actually let teams say, okay, that was the, this is why we've gathered, but now you get to looking at the problem from the perspective of whichever constituent or actor or group that you're, you're advocating for in the room, you get to rewrite the challenge statement. And what yeah. happens when people rewrite the challenge statement is they t- they suddenly take deep ownership of it. Mm. And you see this moment in the room where, all right, I came in, I'm going to be helpful, I'm going to be supportive, I'm going to engage with this thing. But now it's like, oh no, now my team has written the challenge statement. So we say with authorship comes ownership. As soon as you have that moment of, oh, we wrote the, we wrote the challenge. <laughs> it's like, now it's our problem, not yours, <laughs> right? We're going to work on this thing with real energy now. So that's a, that can be really helpful. You know, I love that. And I've been on a mission to eradicate the word buy-in from my lexicon. And any, <laughs> you know, it has a way of creeping in because it's just yeah. part of the way people speak. Yeah. And anytime I see it, I've trained the team to 
keep an eye out. But anytime I see it, I'm like, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. Because I think it sends the wrong metaphor. If you're saying buy-in, it assumes you've had to sell someone something. Yeah, We're in synchronicity here with this authorship <laughs> as ownership because yeah. if people have a hand in making it, then they're going to be deeply, deeply connected to it. And you don't have to convince them that it's a good idea. You don't have to sell it to them, pitch it, anything. Yeah. So I love, love, love that. And before we close out, I did want to come back to one thing, and that was something in the pre-show chat that you mentioned that really spoke to me, which was mm. this notion that prior to the pandemic, there were some things that you were resistant to, maybe as an organization or maybe yeah. as individuals, and you said you had to embrace them. Yeah. And I didn't stop you to ask what those things were because I thought it might be fun to just like yeah. explore it together. <laughs> but I wanted to come back to it and hear that because I think that's a big lesson for folks because yeah. – in the work that we do, we're asking people to to let down their guards, to move past the status quo. And we have to understand that we do it ourselves, right? Oh, so sure. the pandemic was a nice little lesson to go, <laughs> oh, yeah. So what, what are we resistant to? So I'm curious to, if you have a story to share there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it may not be that surprising, but, you know, what happened was we the pandemic made us realize that we had evolved into an event business. And, the, and what I mean by that is that we would refuse to do things online or virtually. We said, no, you, we got to be in the room, right? We're going to convene the group. We're going to be in a place. We're going to be in that. We're going to occupy that space together. We're going to do this work together in the room. That's absolutely the the best way to do it. And there's still a part of me that feels like that. However, because we couldn't be in a room, we had to quickly pivot and say, okay, so how are we going to do this if we can't be in a room together? And, you know, thank goodness that the pandemic <laughs> came along in terms of the work we're doing in 2020 and not in 1980, right? Because the answer would have been, you just can't do it. You know, you'd have a bad speakerphone on a table and people would be trying to do something through a speakerphone. We had all this technology to support us. So we can, can, you know, we, it was with amazing speed, the, the whole world figured out, hey, there's a way that we can gather, it's virtual. And there are, there are some things that are good about that, and there are some things that are difficult about it and challenging about it. A couple of things came out of it that were super, I say, they were super, <laughs> they were great. One was what we found was that the, the, the sort of the introverts who, when you're in a room and you're trying to figure out ways to bring them out and give them a, a, a way to contribute, that when you're working with these virtual tools, you have the ability to, for everybody to make contributions anonymously. And what we found is people were a lot more forthcoming and much more generative. So we could, we could hear voices that we weren't hearing before. We could, we could mm. get input that we weren't getting before. And people were going to be more, in a way, you know, bolder about what they put up on the board because they weren't in front of their boss doing it or in front of a peer doing it, right? They're doing it in a way where they're, they're, they're anonymous. So that was, that was great. Like we just found like, wow, we've got some, there's some richness here. And, and there's this, you know, again, from our earlier conversation, there's this question about like, how do we hang on to that? And how do we, you know, how does that manifest itself when we are in the room together again? How are we aware and cognizant of those, the people who process at different speeds, who process in different ways, who, who are introverted, who might for one reason or another be, you know, physically or psychologically uncomfortable in these spaces? And how do we get, how do we create a level of comfort so that we can we can get their contributions. We can get them fully engaged in participating. 
so that's a question for the future. But I but I found that oh wow, that's you know now we're using these virtual tools, we're getting that. The other thing was you know we would we would run. I mentioned you know a session that we ran was over three days with the client, and when we do a three day session, these are we call them think wrong blitzes, and they're. You know, we started eight thirty in the morning. We end at six thirty. We might have a group dinner one night. You know, they're exhausting. They're really, you know, three mm-hmm. three very long, intense days where people are just, as Mike, my English co-founder, would say, knackered. Right? <laughs> they're, they're knackered. The uh, and and so uh, so are we as people facilitating it. Right? It's exhausting to do that work. So we're going from these intense three day sessions and say, how do you do that work? But you can't. We can't ask them to be on a Zoom or a Teams or whatever session for, for you know, <laughs> three days for you know ten hours a day. That's that's just cruel and unusual punishment. So we started breaking the, we started breaking them apart into smaller units, right? And so what was a blitz became a sprint over a number of days or a number of weeks. And, and uh, in fact, we did what we what we would have done in a few days. We ended up doing with one client over six weeks. Mm. And what that did is it created this in-between space that we never had before, right? And that in-between space, <laughs> I, I read a book a, a, a number of years ago called Understanding Comics. And there's this beautiful example where they show a comic strip and they show the pains of a comic strip. And you have a picture of a guy like, you know, dragging himself through a desert. And in the next frame, he's like climbing a mountain, in the snow. I think Scott McKenzie was the guy who wrote, did that book, wrote it and illustrated it. And the in between the frame, we have no problem imagining that somehow that guy got from the desert to that snowy mountain. Like our brain fills in the story in between, right? And so suddenly we had in a sprint, in a multi-day, multi-session over, over a period of weeks rather than over a per- period of two or three days, we had time to use that time in a different way, right? We could do some synthesis. We could um, give some assignments and allow for some asynchronous work to be done. We could gather some things and look at them. So we we could really work with the output and have a totally different cadence and a different rhythm and come up and come out with some different outcomes that we hadn't expected before. So in that case, now as we sort of move towards whatever the future is going to be in our these this whatever the hybrid model will be, it will be a hybrid. We're going to end up using. We're going to end up taking advantage of this. It's like not everything will be a blitz. You know, we'll be doing sprints. We'll be doing, we'll be mixing some things where we're in a room together. We're doing some things virtually. We're doing some things synchronously. We're doing some things asynchronously. We're going to really take advantage of time and what you can do when you're a lot more open-minded and elastic about how you use it. Yeah, people talk about going back to normal. Things aren't going to go back to the way they were. <laughs> no. <laughs> we may find ourselves in rooms with people again, but the way we show up in rooms with people is going to be drastically influenced by the last two years Absolutely. that we spent designing and thinking about, you know, experiences being different. So I yeah. love all that. I anticipate a lot of cool stuff in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I, I've even seen my wife is a school teacher. She teaches you know, first and second graders or second and third graders, depending on the year. And she, you know, had to use all this technology and she's capable of technology, but doesn't really didn't like bringing it in the classroom. She, she discovered a whole bunch of really great tools and ways of engaging kids. And it's like, oh yeah, she'll keep you. I know she'll keep using those in the classroom. And you know who the, you know who the most underappreciated, most overworked facilitators in the world are? public school teachers. Mm. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Think of how tired you are after you facilitate a session for one day or two days or three days. 
they do it five days a week, five days a week. You know, it's like when she comes home tired, I'm like, I know why you're tired. (laughs) I I just do it every now and then. You do it every single day, you know. Yeah, no doubt. And they do it with children who, you know, well, probably. Well, okay. Fair yeah, enough. hang we'll on a second there, there because children are more <laughs> children are more compliant than adults. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're certainly running up on time here, yeah. so I want to make sure to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought. Okay. Well, I would say let's not waste the last eighteen months. Let's let's use it as a way of. Uh, I hope everybody had an opportunity to reflect on sort of why they do what they do, uh, why they show up. I always t- talk to groups about, you know, the most finite resource that we have is as our own time. It's the number, you know, each of us has a finite number of breaths that we're going to draw while we walk this planet. And so I'm seeing people who are saying, oh, look, I, I've used this time to reevaluate what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it. And I think as facilitators, we have the opportunity to sort of unlock the passion and human ingenuity that people have and direct it in a way that's going to really create positive change. And that could be positive change in an organization. That could be positive change in the community or an economy or, you know, in society. So, you know, I, I've certainly used it to sort of reevaluate and think about where, where am I spending that scarce precious resource? And I, I just, you know, I encourage or the facilitators, we call them instigators, <laughs> you know, where, where I come from, we're a weird tribe doing important work. I, I think that, you know, we have the opportunity to direct an awful lot of passion and, and, and uh, ingenuity to things that matter. You know, I just encourage everybody to, to sort of spend their time doing that <laughs> and, and uh, you know, use your, use your superpowers to, um, to make that difference in the world. Awesome. Greg, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, I hope so too, Vir- virtually or otherwise. And thanks for continuing to put out such great content i always look forward to getting the newsletter i look forward to you know reading the stories and and seeing the the thoughts that you're sharing and you know listening to the podcast and so thanks for doing that it it, we're all i think hungry for great content Uh, there's a lot of content out there there's not a lot of great content so i really appreciate all the work you do to to put good stuff there thanks greg that means a lot and we couldn't make great content without contributions from folks like you so thanks again for joining the show it was a real pleasure chatting thanks for joining me for another episode of control the room don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released and if you want more head over to our blog where i post weekly articles and resources about working better together voltagecontrol.com